This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I'm back in the saddle again Out where a friend is a friend Where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly Jimson weed Back in the saddle again Yes, Radio Parallax is back in the saddle again. It feels pretty good. We've decided that we're going to ease back in slowly over the next few weeks and maybe try and keep things a bit on the lighter side. To that end, we could do well to select some humorous items that, that appear in the Uncle John's Bathroom Readers series. I believe we had uh, Gordon Uncle John Javna on this program three times to talk about various works. And frankly, we are many volumes behind in that, uh, that laudable series. We need to uh, address that issue in the future, pick up some more recent editions, and, and bring Uncle John back on because he's always a kick. And to give you an idea of why it is we like the items that appear in the Bathroom Readers series, we're going back to the 8th edition, which is a ways back in time. Boy, it looks like copyright 1996. Page 55 of that edition has a, uh, a theme of Olympic cheaters. And by the way, we do want to forward promote that we hope on next week's program, perhaps or perhaps the week after that, to bring on Olympiad, who's been on this program before, my neighbor, 105-year-old John Lissack, who competed in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. I think John's going to have a thing or two to say about cheating, or at least slanting things in your favor. Which, you know, you hate to accuse the Nazi regime of that, but boy, it sure seems like those guys weren't as honest as they could have been. But two selections I like from Olympic cheaters are the following. The year was 1924. The place was Paris, France. And what happened was Finland's Pavo Nurmi, the world champion long-distance runner, well, for some reason it says French officials didn't want Nurmi to sweep the gold medals in the 1,500, 5,000, and 10,000 meter events, so they scheduled the 5,000 meter final 55 minutes after the 1,500 meter, hoping Nurmi would be too tired to win the second race. The Finnish officials arbitrarily dropped Nurmi from the 10,000 meter race. So Viel Ritola, Finland's second-best runner, would have a shot at a gold medal. Well, Pavo Nermi was furious, but there wasn't much he could do about it. He ran the 1,500-meter event and won in record time, gold medal. Then, 55 minutes later, he ran the 5,000-meter and won that in record time, a second gold medal. According to legend, as Ritola won the 10,000 meters by half a lap in world record time, Nermi ran, a, Nermi ran alone 10,000 meters outside the stadium and beat Ritola's time. But it turns out the Olympics can top that in a big way, although we're not talking about, in this case, the modern Olympics. We're talking about the original Olympics back in Greece. The year was 67 AD, and the place was Olympia, Greece. And what happened was that Emperor Nero decided to compete in the chariot race. It turns out in the middle of the event, Nero fell off his chariot and was left behind in the dirt. He never completed the course. But wouldn't you know it, the Olympic judges, described as being, quote, under extreme pressure, unquote, declared Nero the winner anyway. Now, we here at Radio Parallax know nothing about the Emperor Nero's uh, predilections to get into 
weather prediction. But we have a feeling that uh, had he declared that a hurricane was going to stri- strike, say, Naples, that officials, quote, under extreme pressure, unquote, would have said, yep, you're right, could be. But we digress. Here's an item that I, I think is, is truly fascinating. The year was 1996 when this came out, and the turn of the millennia was four years away. Oh, and just to revisit that turn of the millennia thing, some people claimed that, you know, it really wasn't going to change in the year 2000. It took to the year 2001 to enter the new millennium. But radio personality Dr. Bill Wattenberg pointed out rather eloquently back in his days on KGO that the problem lay in the fact that they miscalculated the first century. The concept of the year zero was not around. That, that entered uh, Western mathematics through India, I believe. So in trying to go back and figure out the year of the birth of Christ, they were going to call that the year one. It should, of course, been called the year zero. They wound up messing it up anyway. Modern authorities suspect that Christ was probably born in the year 4 B.C., But nevertheless, it turns out that first century started in the year 1 and thus ended in the year 100. Well, Wattenberg said, just because they screwed up the first century doesn't mean we got to keep perpetuating this. Let's just say that the first century A.D. has 99 years, and then afterwards, we'll start measuring in the year zero. Well, we agree with Dr. Wattenberg. And thus, not that anybody cares, we believe that the millennium actually turned over on New Year's Eve 1999. We're pretty sure a lot of you didn't notice because you were partying like it was 1999. Yeah, we think Prince had it right. The odd thing was that song, I believe, came out in like 1983 and was a huge hit. And then wouldn't you know it, was a huge hit again back in 1999. Mr. Whelan points out that is forward thinking. But we were plagued throughout the first 10 years of the new millennium, which started in the year 2000, with what to call that decade. We decided that it should probably be called the aughts, but that never really caught on. In fact, the decade we're in right now, like the one in the 1900s, seems to you know, go undefined. What do you call it? The teens? We're kind of looking forward to when we finally get to the, the 20s and the 30s and we can start calling them by the decade they start with. But anyway, noted the Uncle John's Bathroom Readers series back in 1996. Well, they posed a question. How do you pronounce 2001? Or shall we say 2001? Thanks to Stanley Kubrick's film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, most people think of it as 2001, and that's what almost everybody called it, although we were a part of the vocal minority that would call it 2001, 2002, etc. Now, it turns out that Fred Ordway, he was the man who advised Stanley Kubrick about the film, recalled, Stanley asked me if we should say 2001 or 2001. We decided that 2001 sounded better. We often wondered whether the film's title would have an influence on the English language when we got to the 21st century. And what do you know? It did. Uncle John notes that Bill Sapphire, who wrote a weekly column called On Language for the New York Times, opted for 2001. He said, 2001 may sound mysterious and futuristic today, but by the time we get there, it will be a laborious mouth filler. 
Well, Sapphire was surely right about that, but he was in the minority. A poll conducted by the Futurist in 1993 showed that 62% of people favored 2001. Just 18% preferred 2001, but only 10% went along with 2001. Well, it's kind of a silly problem, I know, and no one's going to have to worry about it until we reach the year 2100. Some of you listening will probably be still around on that fateful day, and we'll leave it up to you to resolve the issue. Mr. Millen's questioning my math on that. Well, okay, if, if it's 81 years in the future and you're 18 years old today, you only got to be 99. Piece of cake! That's far younger than our guest next week. That's true. Anyway, I don't want to completely bog down in the Uncle John's uh, series, although, you know, pretty entertaining bunch of books. But there's one other item I'm going to pull out of the 19th edition. Why? Well, because I'm the host of the show. <laughs> Someone's got to make these decisions. Anyway, from a section titled, Oops, we have this. And, you know, frankly, any, any section that starts, Oops, it's just, well, that's just a, you know, getting off on the right foot. Here's the item from the Telegraph in the UK. One of Britain's most prestigious art galleries put a block of slate on display topped by a small piece of wood in the mistaken belief it was a work of art. The Royal Academy included the chunk of stone and the small bone-shaped wooden stick in its summer exhibition in London. But the slate was actually a plinth, a slab on which a pedestal is placed, and the stick was designed to prop up a sculpture. The sculpture that of a human head, was nowhere to be seen. The Academy explained the error by saying the parts went to the exhibitors separately. Given their separate submission, it said in a statement, the two parts were judged independently. The head was rejected. The base was thought to have merit and was accepted. Now, how it is the base, quote, was thought to have merit, unquote, is is something that they didn't go into and, well... We say just fill in your own joke here. Oh, and there's just one other item from this edition I just, I just can't pass up. If you're a vegan, you should be aware that there could be an issue with certain chewing gums. Because according to the 19th issue of the Uncle John's series, uh, some chewing gums still use castorium. It is used to enhance flavors. It's also used in perfumes and incense for the same reason. It seems to, I guess, in, enhance aromas. Well, that's the good news, but the vegan alert, and I just say perhaps the alert in general, comes from the fact that castorium is produced by the anal glands of beavers. So, uh, anybody want some gum? All right, for those of you not in the know, Miss Merlin couldn't, couldn't restrain himself. That was, in fact, the theme from the TV show, Leave it to Beaver. And all right, I guess that prompts, that prompts a little anecdote. Uh, on the Leave it to Beaver TV program, which, which I watched in my youth, and undoubtedly some of you remember, one of the characters was named Gilbert. He was played by child actor Stephen Talbot. We have been privileged to have two of the Talbot siblings on this program. David Talbot, the founder of Salon.com, has, has, been, on, has been with us on three different occasions. His sister, Margaret Talbot, also joined us to talk about her excellent book about their dad, actor Lyle Talbot. They had a film at the Castro Theater. I believe it was called Three in a Match. It was a pre-code 
uh, movie, which was pretty racy. Once the, the motion picture code came came into play, uh, while well, they toned down movies for the next many decades. This is a pre-code film. It featured themes of adultery, betrayal, drug addiction, you know, it was racy stuff. And I can't resist mentioning that Joe Talbot, David's son, who's, uh, who's, whose movie is out in theaters currently, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, took to great reviews. Joe Talbot apparently sent out uh, a message to family members suggesting they join him uh, to watch this movie and see Humphrey Bogart slap Grandpa around. And it's true. Lyle Talbot does get slapped around by Humphrey Bogart. While I was in the lobby, assiduously <laughs> lobbying Margaret Talbot to come on the program, Stephen was standing around and, and related a story from his college activist days. Evidently, he was with a, a gathering of committed activists, Black Panthers and the like, and I, I don't remember the issue they were discussing, but everyone was trying to, you know, make their point about what needed to be done. Apparently, Stephen gave a brief speech talking about his point of view, at which point, unfortunately, someone in the audience chose that moment to say, Hey, didn't you play Gilbert in Leave it to Beaver? Uh, apparently during this silence, one of the Black Panthers kind of lowered his sunglasses to look over the top at him. We're pretty sure it wasn't Huey Newton, but we're not, we're not sure who it was. Now, we can't say that this destroyed his credit as an activist, but boy, being named as a cast member of Leave it to Beaver didn't do a lot for his street cred, let's put it that way. All right, let's get as far away as possible from the subject of anal secretions. I mean, really, going anywhere will do from that starting point. So my suggestion is we jump into one of our perennial favorites in this program, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We have a little bit of a backlog uh, of, of good week four, bad week four selections from the week magazine, which we generally tend to rely upon for this section. So um, let's do two sets of good, bad, and uglies. All right, round number one. According to the week, it was a, a good week some weeks back for eco-constipation after Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro defended Amazon deforestation by saying that if people want to help the environment, they should poop every other day instead of daily, adding, that would be better for the whole world. And you know, I think you can see why it is they're calling him Brazil's Trump. And yes, uh, The Economist and all sorts of magazines had cover stories about how, um, how it is that, uh, you know, the Amazon's on fire. But it isn't the Amazon that's on fire. It's the parts of the Amazon that have been cleared that are on fire. And uh, it's just an, it's a slow-moving eco-catastrophe that um, is going to be put in high gear, apparently. And we'll talk more about that later. Anyway, moving right along, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a bad week a few weeks back for marital openness. With the news that after a lavish ceremony, Thailand's King Maha Pajiralongkorn, age 67, elevated his mistress, Sinat Wong Vajrakpadi, age 34, to the role of official concubine. His wife, Queen Sudhitha, sat expressionless at his side. 
And it was an ugly week for screen time a few weeks back with the news that a new study shows that the percentage of British teenagers who need glasses soared from 20% to 35% between the years 2012 and 2018. The teens spend an average of 26 hours a week staring at a smartphone or other screen. It is believed that there's a connection between those two items. All right, round two. It was a good week a few weeks back for unplanned pregnancies with the news that former Ohio University basketball star D.J. Cooper, age 28, got banned for two years from the European leagues because he failed a drug test. Cooper's urine indicated that he was either pregnant himself or had borrowed a urine sample from his pregnant girlfriend. Could be either one. You make the call. All right, it was, on the other hand, a bad week for laughing it off with the news that uh, an anonymous couple is suing a Los Angeles hotel because a window washer saw them having sex. The couple's lawsuit says the worker wore a smile of obvious prurient pleasure when he observed their intimacy through the 15th floor window. And, they say, because of the post-traumatic stress disorder this experience inflicted, their romantic relationship has essentially been extinguished, and they have since ended their relationship entirely. What I can't figure out is how it is if their relationship has been ended entirely, <laughs> that their romantic relationship has only been essentially extinguished. Anyway, there's a lawsuit in that, really? And finally, it was an ugly week uh, a few weeks back for thinking outside the box. And this is ugly. The story is that Michigan's Fruitport High School is undergoing a $48 million redesign to reduce the threat of active shooters. Hallways are being curved to limit a gunman's range, and classrooms have a shadow zone where students can cower out of sight of the doorway. Said school superintendent Bob Smozniak, If I go to FPH and I want to be an active shooter, I'm going in knowing I have reduced sight lines. So doesn't that mean the guy's going to have to take a few extra steps to shoot people? Is this worth $48 million? We don't know. It's like spending I don't know how many millions and millions they spent for the suicide net under the Golden Gate Bridge. So now if you want to commit suicide at the Golden Gate Bridge, you got to jump in the net, then you got to jump out of the net. Yeah, someone had their thinking cap on there. You mentioned uh, Trump's weather forecasting a moment ago and on last week's program, and I just can't let it go completely unremarked upon on this week's show. Writing in nymag.com, Chas Danner said Trump was indeed wrong. By the time of his tweet, talking about how Alabama might be threatened, forecasters had said that Alabama was conclusively out of danger and he needlessly frightened state residents. More troubling still is that to hide his error, Trump clumsily altered an official weather map, which is a crime punishable by 90 days in jail, by the way, and then ordered government staff to cover for him. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross reportedly threatened to fire officials at NOAA if they didn't support Trump's original tweet, which several reluctantly did. This triggered a fierce backlash among forecasters inside and outside of NOAA, with one 40-year-old Weather Service employee said he never, ever felt political pressure on a goddamned weather forecast. He added, we're in true banana republic territory. And meanwhile, Brazil's answer to Trump, who we mentioned a moment ago, Jair Bolsonaro, was down apparently in Colombia uh, a week or so ago, 
where seven South American countries signed a pact to boost production for the Amazon basin. A deal sparked by international outrage over fires that have burned thousands of square miles of rainforest this summer. Again, it's probably not the rainforest, it's the areas cleared near the rainforest. The agreement will see the Amazonian nations set up a disaster response network and bolster satellite monitoring. Yeah, right. Environmentalists said the Columbia summit produced few concrete measures to defend the forest known as the Earth's lungs. Bolsonaro, whose country contains 60% of the Amazon, attended by video conference and griped that foreign leaders' concerns about the Amazon were driven by, quote, the sole goal of attacking Brazil's sovereignty, unquote. And just when you begin to suspect they can't get any dumber down in Brazil, we have this. The mayor of Rio de Janeiro ordered a police raid on the city's international book fair last week to seize copies of a Marvel comic that featured a kiss between two male superheroes. Mayor Marcello Crivella, an evangelical Christian, said books like this need to be packaged in black plastic and sealed. The comic, Avengers, the Children's Crusade, was published in 2012 and features a panel which the heroes, Wiccan and Hulkling, who are in a committed relationship, embrace fully clothed. Police weren't able to find any copies of that comic, but the raid triggered outrage. Brazil's largest newspaper, Folha de São Paulo, published a large front-page photo of the kiss. Comic store book manager Lydian Rodrigues said Rio police should focus on assaults, drugs, gangs. There's a lot of things more dangerous than a book here. And just when you think things can't get any dumber in world politics, as we go before the mic today, we're not sure about the outcome of the Israeli election, but it should be noted that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had pledged that he will annex nearly a third of the West Bank if he wins re-election. Netanyahu said he ultimately wants sovereignty over all Israeli settlements in the West Bank, which are illegal under international law, and will begin by claiming the Jordan Valley and the Northern Dead Sea, a strategic strip of territory along the border with Jordan. Well, it's not really along the border with Jordan. It's Palestinian territory. Israel has occupied the West Bank since capturing it from Jordan in the 67 Six-Day War. It's been a political limbo ever since. 400,000 Israelis now live there alongside 2.8 million Palestinians. So if he annexes this territory, he's going to bring a lot of Palestinians into Israel. It was former Prime Minister Ariel Sharon's uh, bright idea to start encouraging settlement in Palestinian territory so that, you know, they'd never have to give it back. I've been there. I've seen it with my own eyes. It's not okay. And that's all I'm going to say today. Dang, we were going to keep things light on today's program. Well, shoot, let's retreat back to the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. You can't go wrong with a section titled, It Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time. Item number one. A 29-year-old St. Paul, Minnesota man identified only as Robert wanted to clean the grit out of his bathtub. His bad idea? Well, he decided gasoline would be perfect to clean the tub. Well, perhaps it worked, but it certainly left the bathroom smelling really bad. Thus, to mask the odor, Robert decided to light some aromatic candles. The outcome? Robert blew up his apartment. He did sustain some nasty burns, but survived. The apartment did not, however. Item number two. 1993, 24-year-old James Scott lived on the Illinois side of the Mississippi. His wife worked on the Missouri side. All Scott wanted to do was party, supposedly, but his wife wouldn't let him. 
His bad idea was to remove some sandbags from a nearby levee, hoping the river would wash out the road that his wife used to take home. The outcome was that Scott did wash out the road. He also flooded 14,000 acres, destroyed crops as well as dozens of homes and businesses, and caused a local bridge to be closed for more than three months. After bragging about his, quote, success, unquote, to friends, Scott was arrested and was sentenced to life in prison, the maximum penalty for, quote, causing a catastrophe, unquote. Man, that's a tough sentence, life imprisonment. We'd have to say under the circumstances, tough but fair. If after flooding 14,000 acres and destroying homes and businesses, he thought he'd succeeded in what he was trying to do, well, he probably should stay behind bars for a long time. All right, in the three minutes we have left on this segment, I want to do something that we talked about, I don't know, about 10 years ago in this program. It's time to redo it. What we talked about a decade ago was how it was you are not the astrological sign you think you are. Well, 15% of you are, but 85% of us are not. The general rule of thumb is that you are the constellation before the one you think you are. That's surprise number one. Surprise number two is there's a 13th zodiacal constellation, Ophiuchus. And to expedite things, I'm just going to read out the dates of the year and tell you what you are. Birth date, April 19th to May 13th. You're an Aries. May 14th to June 19th, you're a Taurus. June 20th to July 20th, you're a Gemini. July 21st to August 9th, you're a Cancer. August 10th to September 15th, you're a Leo. September 16th to October 30th, you're a Virgo. October 31st, November 22nd, you're a Libra. November 23rd to November 29th, you're a Scorpio. November 30th to December 17th, you are Ophiuchus. Surprise. December 18th to January 18th, Sagittarius. January 19th to February 15th, Capricorn. February 16th to March 11th, Aquarius. And 12th of March to 18th of April, Pisces. Why is this the case? Well, the astrological charts people are still using are 2,000 years out of date. The Earth spins on its axis like a top, and that produces the actual constellations, astronomically speaking, that we just mentioned. And now you know the rest of the story. Oh, and by the way, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with Ophiuchus, he is the serpent bearer. It's a rather large constellation, right above Sagittarius and Scorpio. I remember picking out the stars of it uh, back when I was a boy, using the Golden Guide to Astronomy. Uh, unfortunately, due to light pollution... When you're in my same backyard now many decades later, it's pretty tough to pick it out. Which is why this correspondent's going to go to a dark star party in eastern Nevada next week. I'm getting away from this damn light pollution. Let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. we got lots more. Stick around. Don't. 